Yo lovers, welcome to the eighth episode of Vocal About It, or shall I say, Fragile About It. As our listeners wish, this episode is going to be all about white tears. We're going to touch on fragile egos, the power of crying, how privileged people use emotional pressure to evade accountability, and the importance of getting over yourself. Lovers, it's been so long. We're super excited. It's been forever, huh? Right, yes. We had to take a little break, but we have the episode that y'all asked for today, which is going to be about white tears. We have so so many feelings and so many things to say about this <laughs> but we're gonna try to you know keep it short and sweet and efficient and we're actually changing the format a little bit so we are going to start with celebrating women of color that have inspired us that we want to talk about and whose work we want to celebrate and i will start so in the light of the christchurch uh, white supremacist terrorist attack i wanted to send some love to our muslim brothers and sisters and particularly celebrate muslim sisters out there Uh, so I want to take the opportunity to celebrate two amazing Muslim women of color whose work is very inspiring. The first one is French. Her name is Sarah Zouak, and uh, she's an entrepreneur. She founded in May 2016 an association and magazine that's called Lalab, L-A-A-A-B. And the objective of Lalab is to make the voices of Muslim women in France heard and to really fight against racist and sexist oppression. The values that are mentioned on the website is feminism, Feminism, solidarity, kindness, diversity, and giving the mic to the women who are concerned by all, all of the different oppressions that are happening out there. Uh, so there's a lot of different really cool workshops, articles that they post. They do amazing stuff. They're super vocal about the different oppressions that Muslim women face uh, in France. And unfortunately, you know, I think these days are kind of a peak for Islamophobia in France. So the struggle is real. So just wanted to celebrate her and send tons of love to Muslim women all around the world. The second woman I want to celebrate is Leila Ali Elmi. She is a Swedish lawmaker of Somalian descent. And um, she is the very first hijab-wearing Sweden member of the parliament. She's really, really inspiring. She does great work. And uh, she mentions that she wants other people that are minorities, people who feel disregarded because of who they are, who they choose to be or what they were born to be, to see that they are people fighting for human rights, liberty, and for democracy. While doing research about her, I found out that Sweden is actually among the countries where refugees find it the hardest to assimilate due to cultural isolation. And that last year, uh, actually now it's in 2017, the United Nations say it was concerned about the level of racism in the country. And that to me was very interesting because I always portray and talk about Sweden as such a forward-thinking country, you know, in terms of gender equality, they are the shit. Mm -hmm. but, but you know what? When it comes to racism and Islamophobia, they're, yeah, pretty high up there. So that was quite interesting for me to, to, to note. So yeah, these are the two women I want to celebrate. Very cool. Um, I will continue with a Yazidi woman who is going to be something like the rising star of literature in Germany. This I feel in my fingers. Her name is Ronja Ottmann and I think we will all hear a lot from her. She wrote an amazing text in the German magazine The Spiegel, uh, writing about the exile of her Yazidi family. It's called um, an essay called 100 Flüche, 100 Segenswünsche, which translates something like 100 grudges, 100 blessings. And uh, she's very vocal about racism in the literary scene, where white people often tell her things like she should watch out, that she isn't put in a migrant corner. So that 
yeah, her writing is supposed to bridge in, into white people's attention and um, so that it's easily digestible and shit like that. Um, she is living and studying literature in Leipzig. Leipzig's so white, where she is basically <laughs> alone, alone among white people, which I could very much relate to. Um, we actually had a little interview and um, she told me how it's like to to be in Leipzig and how um, also left groups are primarily white and um, are white men explaining her Kurdish politics, romanticize her struggle without knowing anything about what it's actually like. Uh, just after they seen one documentary, they know all about it. And then I asked her why she thinks this is, that privileged people always feel so entitled and feel that it's so normal to white men explain you something. And we, as marginalized people, would never feel the urge to do so. It would really not come to my mind. And she said that she thinks it's because the ones affected know that it's complex, that it's complicated, that you can't just have an easy stand on such a complicated topic. And we know, other than white people, that there is no easy way out. Mm-hmm. Um, follow her on Instagram and Twitter. Her bio says writing and crying, which I thought is a very good fit <laughs> for this episode. Sure, yes. Yes. <laughs> she is right now writing a novel. And yes, we're going to hear a lot from Ronja Ottmann. Dope. Yes. So inspiring. Yes. And just a quick reminder that we always mention the names and the work with a little link about all of the women that we celebrate. Yeah. So you can um, please go and do some further research if you want to read on them, celebrate them, send them some love. Uh, you can very much do so. All right. So we are now going to start a conversation, which is one that's very important. And we had actually many anecdotes to talk about. So I am going to talk about the most recent one that happened to me about two weeks ago. Y'all know how I love to tell stories, so <laughs> it's happening. So I have a German friend who's a white man who's my age, so yeah, 28 years old, really educated, works for a you know, big company and uh, has a very, I guess, comfortable life, well-traveled and stuff. We met also back in the days in Singapore. And he's a very big fan of the podcast. Mm, so he's going to hear that. <laughs> so <laughs> you know what i hope so and uh the story goes that he at some point had a recommendation for the podcast which had me a bit cringing because i really want white people to be considerate of the fact that you know do are you really the best person as a white man to give advices on what two women of color should do about a podcast that celebrates women of color mm. i'm not sure mm -hmm. Uh, I would not necessarily go and give feedback to two white men doing a podcast on what it is to be a white man, yeah? So I think it's important to be respectful and thoughtful when you do these kind of things. That's number one. Number two, he basically was using really the wrong vocabulary for the things that he wanted to express, which I won't go into details now. And I'm, I'm, I'm a very calm person, but that did kind of trigger me, right? So I just told him, yo, you need to be careful with the vocabulary that you use. And I think what you mentioned is actually about white privilege, which is you know, the opposite of what we want to uh, focus on in the sense, except if it's in the sense that like it basically oppresses us, which is something that we touch on on every episode. Anyways, the situation kind of escalated and we ended up talking on the phone and he was already extremely defensive uh, and he was telling me, and I know, okay, I just want to put some context here. I'm not an easy person to have an argument with. <laughs> I know my shit. I'm very sassy and I get into that mood where like I'm, that's, that's it. Like I know I'm right. <laughs> I mean, okay. If you are wrong. 
When I know I'm right though, I have zero issues telling someone you I have no idea about this. I have zero issues apologizing or saying that I'm wrong when I'm wrong. But in that kind of topic, in that kind of context, I know I'm right. And I, yeah, basically I know my shit. I'm very sure of the things I want to put out there. And I can, if, to the most extreme cases, I can even have like a bit of a politician kind of approach where I'm going to like destroy your ass very calmly and politically and eloquently, but like you are done. <laughs> But this was not really the case here. But anyways, start, we start talking and he's very defensive. And so I just, again, explain him that, you know, I, I would appreciate that he thinks twice about giving me and Sarah feedback about the podcast because I don't think it's really appropriate, spe specifically for the one he had. And he was telling me, yeah, but basically, okay, like whatever I say now, you're going to say something wrong because of course, la, 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 la. And um, I was telling him, well, it's not, it's not really about, you know, it's not really about that, but I would appreciate that you change your attitude because I am now taking the time to educate you on this and to have this conversation, but I don't, I don't actually have to. And there he flipped. Mm -hmm. There he was like, um, okay, but isn't that what friends are supposed to do? Why are you even giving me that attitude? Like you don't have time to talk to me or to explain this to me. You know, at the end of the day, I don't see you as a black woman and me as a white man. We're just friends. Ah, ah the cringe. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Y'all, this was Friday night. I just came home from work. I was so fucking tired after a long week. And my emotional level was just very low. So I got emotional very quick. And I was just like, yo, everything you just said is problematic at so many levels. Keep in mind, this is someone who's a fan of vocal about it. Mm -hmm. These are the things that we talk about over, over, and over again. That's number one. And number two, if you want to go further and do the research, that's actually exactly what you should do, specifically as a white person. So now the fact that you expect me to educate you on which authority that, does that come from? Mm -hmm. On which authority? I'm doing a fucking podcast that you can listen to every two weeks. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you women to go and, you know, check their work. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you articles to check. And clearly you haven't understand anything. From which authority do you expect a black woman to educate you on all of this? And then he was like, you know, I live in Munich and in such a white city. And like you were my only friend of color. This is the definition of white tears. Because you're trying to make me feel bad about not being willing to taking a further amount of time to explain your shit. Which I'm actually doing. But anyways, I just told him, listen, um, I think we should. I'm going to hang up now. I don't have the energy for this. I am going to send you three articles and one video. You check them if you want to. If you don't, that's also fine. But if you do, then come back to me and let me know what, let me know what you think. And me doing this is telling him, yo, I want to save this friendship. So please do the work. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that's actually me doing work again because I spent an hour going and researching very specific articles. And guys, there's so many of them out there on how to be a good ally on if you're a white person that have friends of color, how can you be the best friends you can possibly be? There's so, so, so many. So I had to select them, you know, pick and choose. I send that to him. And then I think one, two weeks passes. I have no news from the guy. Mm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And again, I go to him. I say, Hey, have you read anything that I sent you? Do you want to talk about it? He's like, yes, I've read everything and some of them multiple times. But, you know, I just, uh, yeah, I think it would require more than a 15-minute conversation. So it depends on the energy you want to put on this. And, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any solutions uh, that you want to put into place? I was like, oh, my God. Holy shit. So this is when, and I know I can be very radical when it comes to this. I have no issues losing friends over this. I know that I'm radicalizing myself when it comes to the people I choose in my life. Yes. I just sent him an audio. I'm like, yo, clearly you haven't read the things that I sent you. Clearly. Because you are, again, asking me to do the work. Mm -hmm. You're asking me for solutions. You're asking me to put energy into this. Yes. This is unbelievable. Yes. That's exactly what I was, you know, trying to tell you here. 
you're blinding out the power relations. You put your friend in a position where she has to be like, yo, I might not be a black woman for you, but for everybody else out there, I am. And I have to defend myself out there every day, all day. Can my friendship be a space where I don't have to do that? Can you please, even though you live in Munich, go onto the internet and do this research for yourself? And hey, you were trying to save that friendship. You were putting energy into that and he was hurt and he felt like he is allowed to be hurt and you have to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is what it's about. And for me, it feels like he didn't understand that you were connected and you were invested on fixing it. Yeah. Because if not, he would have just not heard from you at all. Mm -hmm. You exactly. could have just outright ghosted him. Completely. Which oh. I did in the past. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I did in the past too. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel that this is so important to understand that when a person of color cuts you out of their lives, then this is because they can't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. Because it's just too much. And I've had that in my past too. That um, I've had friends in white circles um, where it was only me and another dude who were people of color. And uh, one of a friend who I went to school with. So we really, we knew each other and she had experienced racist bullshit happening to me too. And they were actually together. So the, the dude of color and she. And um, at one point, point she just started making those really cringy not funny um racial slurs like using them on him and me like she was she was the queen of people of color yeah kind of thing using that racial slur though which is yeah kind of the worst you can say in in austria about people of color and um i never had the nerve to confront her about it i never went there and say listen This is not cool. I don't think why you think that's cool and why you are allowed to do that just because you are the girlfriend of this dude and you are my friend doesn't give you automatically the allowance to go ahead and be racist because you have us as people who are your reference friends where you can be like, hey, but I can't be racist because I have you as friends. This is bullshit. But I, I calculated her reaction. I knew where it was gonna end. And then I came to to the end that I, I don't have the energy for that. Mm -hmm. I can't do it. I knew that she would turn it around. I knew that she would be the one who is hurt. And make you the oppressor. Exactly. She would say things like, but oh, we know each other for such a long time. You know how I mean it. Bitch, I don't. <laughs> even if I do, even if I do, we know each other for such a long time. Why would you do that to me? Exactly. That, is the, that is the actual question. I, I deserve some compassion here. Mm -hmm. This is not about you. Mm -hmm. But I know that she wouldn't have been able to put herself in this position, put herself in my shoes, but she would be super hurt. She would be confused. She would start making everything about her. And I would have to not only defend the position I had in the first place, but also me as the attacker or something. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I didn't want to do that. I didn't see myself getting out of this situation in a position where I wanted to be. So I decided to cut herself out of my life. Yeah. And um, she doesn't know that. She doesn't know any of that. I'm not even sure if she would recognize this behavior if she listened to this right now, because I feel that it was just so natural for her. But I would like your friend to know that My ex-friend. <laughs> rubbing it in, rubbing it in. He's not gonna get out of this anymore. <laughs> 
that you were actually, you wanted to make the work. Yeah. You wanted to make it work. And I didn't want to anymore because I didn't trust this person anymore. But you had the basic trust in him mm -hmm. that you could handle it somehow. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is as well about this whole color blindness shit. If you have friends of color, that's exactly how you should see them. Never tell a friend of color like, I don't see you as black. I don't see you as brown. I don't see you as whatever. Please do see them so. Because what that entails is that you are going to be much more considerate with the vocabulary that you use, with the places that you recommend for you, for you to go for coffee even. Is that a place where they are going to feel comfortable? The trips you recommend, is that a country that's going to feel okay for them, you know? And then you can be a real friend because you see that person exactly um, how they are and then, you know, the different intersections that come into their lives that you need to take into consideration as a friend of them. That brings me to a, a, a quick thing I want to mention, which is the concept of white fragility, which is an actual concept that was developed by Robin DiAngelo, who's an American author and academic. She actually studied critical whiteness, yeah? And she talks to other white people about how to be a better ally and how to get rid of all this moral bullshit that's around racism and that casual racism actually exists within every white person. And I really invite you all to go and check out, um, I think it's 11 rules or 12, rules of engagement that are within white fragility because the anecdote that I just shared is exactly that. The thing that Sarah mentioned of how her friend would have reacted is exactly that. The fact that you need to protect white person feeling when you talk about race. The fact that you need to make sure to always assume that your white friend is not a racist because if not, he's gonna, who she's gonna make sure to turn that around and make you the oppressor. And all of these different things are exactly what we're going to talk about today and exactly what you, if you're a white person, need to take into consideration. And if you're a person of color also needs to know about because you will see that you can see this in so many behaviors of the people around you. Yeah. Totes. And you know what? What I, I realized through this episode that people who are usually referring to when like white people do something racist, other people say, hey, that's kind of racist. Could you not? And they say, ah, oh, but I have a friend who thinks that's totally cool, um, who never said anything. I figured those are the ones who just don't have the heart to go up there and say, dude, that's freaking racist. Can you cut it out? Because they don't trust you enough, mm -hmm. because they don't believe that you would react in a way that's appropriate and that leaves them in their integrity and that doesn't hurt them up to a point where they can just cut you out. Mm -hmm. So this is bullshit. Your friends of reference is not your friend. Because, yeah, zero, zero trust in your game on handling this. So stop referring to this person because yes. friendship is not there. Forget Absolutely. it. Mm -hmm. Or even if you want to mention this cousin of yours who's actually a person of color. And you know what? Even if you're actually fucking married to a person of color that at no point in time gives you a label of I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. Every person out there has biased. We live in a white supremacist, racist, heterosexist, patriarchal society. Boom. I'm going to let that sink in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that means that all of us, and even us sisters of color, have some internalized racism. Yes. And because for white person, they are the norm. White is just the fucking norm. And it removes any racist experience for their life. Yeah. The thing is, yes. you are not immune. Mm -hmm. And you cannot be immune by being the parent of a, of a kid of color or by, by being surrounded by, by people of color. That doesn't make you immune against racism. You have to do the work. Everybody has to do the work, even if you're young, progressive in general, or you think that you're quite progressive, even if you are surrounded by very diverse people. 
it doesn't automatically come that you that you are liberal in your head. You have to put a lot of labor in vomiting up all this racist bullshit that Absolutely. has been shoved down your throat and liberate you from it. And um, yeah, I feel like often young people think that they are already anti-racist per se. And uh, I actually have another anecdote of a really really awful and cringy experience I made last year when I was at a wedding and oh god that was so terrible <laughs> and yeah so a friend of mine married and uh, I was there I didn't know so many people and at the bachelorette party apparently um, they all built pottery and one of her friends had built something that just looked like the caricature of the black man in the 19th century or something like ears lips everything but <laughs> There was a hook nose. And I, I got there and said, like, mm, racist much? I was, like, I said it in a, in a casual tone because I was there for a wedding. I didn't want to have a, I didn't want to give her a lecture. I didn't want to go there. I, and you don't want to create a drama. Exactly. So I would have let her off the hook. I said it in a way where she could have said, oops, I didn't see that or something. Um, which would have been bullshit. Yes, which would have been bullshit, yeah. but I would have been willing to drop it for the sake yeah. of, <laughs> of the marriage. <laughs> and, um, but she did not drop it, but tried to pursue me that this could not have been racist because of the hook nose. And I was like, all right, so you knew exactly what you were doing there. You saw what it looked like. Then you tried to weasel out of the situation by just using another anti-Semitic trope exactly. to cover up your racist trope. Um, I see what you did there and you know that I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. So cut the crap. And she did not take it well, but tried to tell me, is every hook now, knows now an anti-Semitic trope? Isn't that actually kind of anti-Semitic of you? And I was like, oh, all right. Oh my God, turning it on you? Exactly. Wow. You don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Let's drop it. And she continued. And I said again, let's drop it. I'm not here for you. And she didn't. At, at one point, I was just like so fed up that I walked away mm -hmm. and was enjoying my night. An hour later, she comes back to me crying. Of course. Telling me that she is incredibly crushed that she didn't want that, that um, she actually thinks of herself as a very progressive mind, that she can too make mistakes. If she would have put a full stop here, we could have been best friends. Mm -hmm. It would have been fine. But she continued and told me that she was so crushed because I let her stand there and just walked away and that this really wasn't okay of me. And all of a sudden she was the victim here. Mm -hmm. This made me realize how, how easily it can be turned around against you when you have the nerve to stand up against it and say, hey, this is racist. I don't think that's cool. And I don't think that you should get away with it. They are trying to slip out of accountability by crying. Which usually works out very well. Exactly. Exactly. Because I am not the victim anymore. Mm -hmm. I cannot be the victim because I stepped up because I aggressed her. Or at least this is how it can be very easily seen because this has been out there for such a long time that yeah. women of color are not really the perfect victims, but more perpetrators any second when it comes to white women. And yeah, I felt like my issue that was very legit was washed away in a second and replaced by her non-issue that was just trying to get out of responsibility here. Mm -hmm. What really struck me was the thing that 
She was my age. Mm -hmm. She was not some old fart. Mm -hmm. She was not some white feminist second wave kind of thing where you can say, all right, it's about age. It was not about age. And racism never is about age because it's about the work you put in. She yeah. didn't put any work in and you would just have to scratch the very surface and see this. So yeah, it just made me realize that once again, you're never immune. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Three very important things here. Number one, I always do this, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gotta structure them thoughts. <laughs> Number one is that it is unbelievable how it is so much worth for white people to be called racist than to actually be racist. This I find very interesting. Number two is that in a lot of these different situations, and this is exactly white fragility again and white tears, their feelings become much more important than our experiences as people of color. The way they feel becomes the focus of the attention and whatever racist shit they just did, whatever comment they had that was inappropriate, whatever emotions that we put on the table, because this is something that we live all the fucking time, is just washed away. And that's the very concept of white tears and making sure that you're gonna move the, the conversation around, you're gonna move the attention around to how much you're crying now mm -hmm. and how crushed you are mm -hmm. and how tough this is on you. Mm -hmm. Number three, I really wanna mention that there are so, so many articles out there, videos, educational material, on uh, the fact that you can really do so many things to be a better ally. And uh, one of the episodes that, I, um, the articles that I actually sent to my friend that I mentioned earlier was one where it is so important to make sure as a white person, and specifically if you happen to work with a lot of people of color, to remove yourself from this situation if you feel like you're getting emotional. And that reminds me of one specific testimony where apparently there was like kind of this gathering of activists and they were talking about Black Lives Matter or something similar. And so they were talking about police brutality. So of course it's very triggering because you know, you're talking about injustice, you're talking about death, which is very heavy topics to, to talk about. And this white woman starts crying. So she's an activist and she, there's a lot of other people of color in the room and black people. And this white woman starts crying because it's so sad, everything that's being told. Of course it's sad. But the fact that she started crying meant that half of the room started to go towards her and say, hey, it's going to be fine. And just starting to like comfort her, you know, make sure she was okay and she stopped crying. So the whole focus turned to the white woman's tears. And that I always say the power Seriously, the power of a white woman's tears are mm -hmm. an arm of mass destruction. I am not even joking. Extra so, salty. <laughs> very salty. <laughs> but so it's important to just be conscious of that so that you can, you know what, leave the room, go cry in the toilets because people are actually leaving this. Mm -hmm. People have cousins, brothers, neighbors that have died because of this. They're not crying here. And so the fact that sometimes there's some emotions coming up or whatever doesn't mean that you're allowed to just take that much space in that specific moment, which I think is very important. Exactly. Stepping back, understanding this is not about me, mm -hmm. getting over yourself and understanding, wait, this is about my friend or wait, this is about a person who is calling me out on racism or whatever. This is number one when it's about understanding how your privilege protects you, how your whiteness protects you, how you can very easily make everything turn around yourself. And if you know about this mechanism, step out of it. Yeah. Don't use it. Don't use it because it's going to be harmful as fuck for the people who already have the nerve on calling you out. The other ones don't give a shit about you. Mm -hmm. This you need to realize, huh? Exactly. Actually, I got to know about 
white tears and the power of white women's tears specifically very early in my life because I, I remember this anecdote. Like I was I was one year early oh, yeah. at school when I was very young. So I think maybe I was like six years old. And so that means that all of the kids I was hanging out with uh, and being in the same class with were seven or eight years old. And I was a very shy kid, except with, with my friends, yeah? So, uh, yes, which is hard to believe. <laughs> Yes. And so uh, the way that, uh, so we're in the southwest of France for the context and um, I'm living with, you know, my single mama and my sister. And every morning my mama prepares a little snack for me because what happens is that we all have snacks. And then when we enter the classroom, we all drop our snacks in one big bowl. And then when it's 10.30 for the break, then we all pick up our snacks and go around our things uh, before we come back to the classroom later. And that day, I had a specific snack from the brand Kinder, little brand placement here. <laughs> they should pay us for this. Uh-huh. Let's reach out. <laughs> and uh, which was one of my favorites. I was really excited for it to be 10.30 so that I can eat my snack. I go about my business. It's 10.30. All of the kids rush to the snack bowl. I pick up my snack. And next thing I know, there's this little white girl whose name was Pauline. I remember her. I will always remember her. <laughs> Pauline comes to the professor and say, hey, Sarah stole my snack. And uh, y'all need to know, like, I was so serious and right and, like, hardworking. And I was, I was not about that life, yeah? So I did not steal anyone's shit. And so the professor comes to find me. I'm halfway through my snack, playing with my friends. And she's like, Sarah, can you come here? Pauline is crying. She's so sad. And uh, the professor tells me, why did you steal Pauline's snack? So not even, hey, Pauline said this. Is this true? Just right away ask me, why did you steal Pauline's snack? I say, I didn't, I didn't steal anything. This is my snack that my mama prepared for me this morning. What are you talking about? And Pauline starts, no, it's not true. You actually stole my snack because I had the exact same one and it's not there anymore. And I was just so confused. Y'all, they called my mom. They called my mom. They called Pauline's mom in the school to actually deal with that. And I was just so appalled. I was so shocked. Of course, I did not have the tools at all at fucking six years old to just, you know, counter all this and the injustice. But just the fact that she was crying and feeling so sad and, and lying so properly about it got me in massive troubles. So that was, for me, the realization of, wow, the power of uh, white tears is extra real. And this in my life, I need to be super careful about. Because whatever I say, I'm pretty much fucked afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the stealer because, of course, I'm a black kid. So probably, you know, I'm, I come from a, a lower income family or whatever. And I wanted that branded snack or so. So there's just so many racist assumptions that come with it that put us in very, very unjust situations. Yeah. yeah. And it's just taking for granted that you are the one who must be the perpetrator here. Exactly. And I think this is so important for, for people also our age who want to be friends with us mm -hmm. need to understand that for us solidarity feels like a very borrowed thing mm -hmm. and it can be turned around and stepped in our backs in the blink of an eye when we don't behave the way those white people want us to exactly. like talking back eating the snack they would like to have <laughs> or <laughs> whatever it might be calling them out on bullshit yeah. then all of a sudden it all goes to pieces mm -hmm. if you really want to be an ally this is what you should do i think the important thing is if you want to apologize you really gotta take responsibility for what you're saying. It's not about justifying yourself. It's not about finding a reason or rationalizing. It's apologize and then step away and let the other person decide if they want to accept that, if that's cool for them or not. Respect if they don't want to have anything to do with it. And um, 
educate other people about that. I think this would be what I would like to have from an ally, that you don't put the burden of educating on me. But if you know something, go ahead, mingle with your white friends and tell them. Mm -hmm. This would be something that I would not like to do, so go for it. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think this would be the strategies that that I would like our white listeners to apply out there. Yes. Boom. <laughs> Maybe we should just start singing the end. I truly believe that there is no excuse in 2019 for wishful ignorance. So if you do not do the work, do not expect for any other person and even less for people of color to educate you when it comes to race, racism, white privilege and any of this. So um, I want to provide some kind of survival techniques for all of our sisters of color out there who are going through similar things, who are, you know, listening to through our episode and being like, oh my God, I can so much relate to this. You know, we've been trying all along to give, you know, some tools and different resources, material that you can check out. One of the very important thing that I got to learn from Marie da Silva, who's an amazing French woman coach, who work a lot with women of color in France and really try to empower them because a lot of them work in majority white environments. And so she created different techniques for them to survive, basically. One of them is the technique of 300 seconds. Mm. And this is one I love to mention because it really was a life change. change. It was a life changer. (laughs) It was really a life changer for me. Basically, 300 seconds equals to five minutes. And this is the time that you can allow yourself to spend on educating someone, on answering any racist remarks, or engaging with someone who said something problematic. And what that does is, you don't have a lot of time in a day, so you just can't fuck around and and justify yourself and talk about that research that you saw. Uh, you, you, You just don't have time. Because what happens is, and what that made me realize, is that a lot of people who come to you and say, hey, what can we do to solve racism? Or, you know, people who come with their super racist um, jokes at work, whatever. They are not interested in doing the actual work. They're not actually interested in your experience. They're not actually interested in changing their behavior, their mentality, and the things that are racist and built into their mind. They're not interested in that. So at what time of the day would you have to go and spend more than 300 seconds educating them, providing them with tools and resources, and basically justify your existence for them? So this is a very important technique that I want you all to keep in mind because this is really about saving your energy, saving your sanity, and making sure you don't give too much time to racist fucks out there. So precious. Yes. Another thing, and again, I'm unbelievably lucky with my people here, with my podcast wife, Sarah, and our child, Sedan, who you heard in the episode six of Vocal About It on um, being a queer woman of color, is just, you know, finding groups of people of color that you can hang out with, uh, engage with, whether that book clubs, whether that's, you know, artists hang out. I know that there's more and more of this in, in many different European countries, and I think that's really, really important to have, to create safe spaces where you can really be yourself where you don't have to justify anything and you start the conversation at 35% because 
you know that people around you understand you. And another thing, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's really a technique, but I think to survive, one very important thing is to know your history, know your environment, know your country's figures when it comes to racism as well. So I mentioned a few figures about, about Sweden earlier and the racism there. There's a report that was done by the EU on the experiences of people of black and African descent in Europe. And there you can see a lot of different figures on basically institutional racism. And um, if your country does, you know, some kind of research, uh, social work, uh, study that you can find, whether it's about unemployment, whether it's about um, the experience in education and all of these things. And also just ask the right questions to yourself, to your teachers, to your parents, uh, to the people around you. You know, if you go to a certain school and there is only white teachers, why is that so? How come? <laughs> or how come there's specific stories that are not told within your curriculum? How come when you go to work, you're the only person of color? You know, what work is done there? And, and yeah, different things uh, like this that you need to ask. Thanks for listening to this episode and spread the wisdom and hear you in two weeks. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vocal About It. If you enjoy our real talk, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to share us on your platforms and follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handle vocalabout underscore it. If you have a sweet feedback or want to cooperate, drop us an email under vocalaboutit at gmail.com. See you next week.